In the wake of President Trump's release of a tax reform outline, CNN's Sally Cohen took to Twitter to explain her take on the prospective legislation. She tweeted, translated Trump's tax plan for you, and it's a picture of Trump's tax plan, and written over it in pink pen, it says, take dollars from the people, give it to the super rich. This is not how taxes work. There is a basic inconsistency here for Cohen. She's correct that higher taxes on a relatively small percentage of the middle class via reduction of tax deductions would involve government taking more money from those affected. But she then suggests that rich Americans paying less taxes somehow amounts to reallocation of resources from the middle class to those in the top tax bracket. So in other words, taxation is theft when it's applied to those who aren't in the top quintile of income earners. But for those rich folks, taxation is an expected tribute to be paid to the government. Here is the question. At what income cutoff does taxation become good? Cohen doesn't say. But this is pure illogical class warfare. When told this on Twitter, Cohn responded that she didn't appreciate mansplaining. She wrote, mansplaining is caring, am I right? Sally, it's called economic explaining, and we wouldn't have to do it if you would logic understand. Cohn also ignores the fact that the rich pay the overwhelming majority of net taxes in the United States. According to the Tax Foundation, in 2014, 35% of Americans paid no income tax. Those earning more than $250,000 paid 55% of the entire income tax burden. The top 20% of earners paid 84% of all income tax, according to the Tax Policy Center. According to the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office report on distribution of taxes in 2013, the top 1% of households paid 34% of their income to federal taxes. The middle 20% paid just 12.8%. The top quintile of income households paid an average of $57,700 into federal tax coffers in 2013 when you include any wealth transfers they were paid by the federal government. The fourth highest quintile paid $2,600. The middle quintile paid actually made $7,800 from the feds, and the second lowest quintile made $12,000. The lowest quintile made $8,800. Bottom line, according to the American Enterprise Institute, the highest income quintile is financing 96% of the entire system of transfer payments to the bottom 60% and funding the operation of the federal government. So no, the rich aren't undertaxed. They're paying for the whole operation. We actually have the most progressive federal tax system among all OECD 24 countries. But keep banging that drum, Sally. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. So after that auspicious start, we'll jump right in in just a second, talking about uh, what's going on with Ann Coulter and the rise of fascism in the United States. I feel like I have a particularly good window on this since I've actually been at the center of some of these campit riot type events. Um, but first, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Lyft. So if you are looking for a ride sharing app, if you are looking for a way to get from point A to point B in the safest and cleanest possible fashion, Lyft is the app that does it. So as I've said many times on the program before, my wife comes back very often, very late at night from working as a doctor. She is a beautiful young woman and I would not want a creeper driving her around. That is why she uses Lyft. Lyft checks you know, checks the drivers through this, this, in this long security check. They check the cars. All the cars have to be relatively news. So you're not going to get some weirdo driving up in a clunker from 1987, some rape van from 1987. You're not going to get that with Lyft. Uh, and uh, they, they're the people that I trust to drive my wife around. They're the people that she trusts to drive her around. I, I use Lyft everywhere. And there's a reason for that. It's because they're the best. Right now, Lyft is offering our listeners a special deal for new users. You get three free rides up to 10 bucks each. That's a $30 value when you enter promo code Shapiro. So you download the free Lyft app and make sure you enter that promo code Shapiro in the payment section. And you'll start with three free rides up to $10 each, up to a $30 value. Again, that's promo code Shapiro, promo code Shapiro. Again, they are the safest. They are the best. They are the cleanest. And uh, you can tip people in the app. So they also have the happiest drivers, which means that you're less likely to get a ticked off guy uh, who wants to beat you up because he's angry at the wages that he's been making. So Lyft is the best way to travel. Make sure that you go to Lyft and then use that promo code Shapiro in the payment section. Okay, so the big issue of the day, obviously, 
is what's been happening in Berkeley. So a couple of points you made about this right off the bat. First off, Anne does not have any obligation to go to Berkeley. So if I were Ann Coulter, would I go to Berkeley? Maybe I would seriously consider it, but I would also consider the possibility that I wouldn't actually want to be shot in the face. And that's the problem here is that, you know, I've been at the center of some of these incidents, but Antifa, which is now prominent in Berkeley, they actually engage in physical violence. We've had on two guests in the last week talking about the sort of violence they engage in. We had on Bay Stickman and we had on Lauren Southern talking about the, the violence that is now occurring in Berkeley with Antifa at the head of it. That is a different thing than a lot of these students. So we had a, a, a lot of students who made trouble when I was at Cal State Los Angeles. There was a near riot there. Some people got beat up in the crowd, but it wasn't anything like what you're seeing at Berkeley with the blood flowing and people throwing sticks of dynamite and such into the crowd. That's a new thing. And I don't blame Anne for not wanting to die uh, in the middle of Berkeley. You know, I, I think that um, there's a strong case that she should go anyway with a bullhorn, but it's, it's totally up to her, and I'm not going to rip her for that. By the same token, I'm certainly not going to rip Young America's Foundation. Full disclosure, I work with them all the time. I'm not going to rip Young America's Foundation for doing what they're supposed to do in this situation, which is protect their students. It is not Young America's Foundation's fault that the, that the police are refusing to defend the free speech rights of people participating at University of California, Berkeley. YAF has legal liability. If YAF were to go there and then some of their students were to get hurt, there's a possibility that YAF gets sued, and YAF can't have that because they are a 501c3 organization. They have an obligation to protect their students. YAF was not anti the event. YAF was pro the event. It was YAF backing the event all the way down the line until it, made, it was made clear that the police were going to let Antifa run roughshod over the people who are going to show up. I know that YAF stands by its people because YAF stood by me when DePaul threatened to arrest me. YAF stood by me when CSULA threatened to cancel my event. We walked right into it anyway. So this idea that's being promulgated by some sort of anti-YAF folks on Twitter that YAF is weak on this stuff, it's just not true. YAF filed a lawsuit alongside me against Cal State LA. They filed a lawsuit alongside Ann Coulter against the University of Berkeley system. The idea that they have some sort of obligation to push their students to go to an event where the students are going to get hurt, that seems to me foolish. If the students want to go, the students are free to go. They're adults. Um, but, you know, putting it on Yaf is silly. There's really only one group to blame here, two groups to blame. Antifa, obviously, because they are fascists, and they are fascists who engage in violence for political reasons. But the bigger problem here is bigger than Antifa. It's a bigger problem than Antifa. In the 1960s, when rioters basically took over University of California at Berkeley, the governor was Ronald Reagan, and Ronald Reagan sent in the National Guard. He called in the National Guard, and they literally marched into Berkeley, took over the place, and tamped down whatever violence was taking place. They kicked people out of the public buildings they had occupied. Where the hell is Jerry Brown, the governor of the state of California? What is the mayor of Berkeley doing? And the answer is they are all standing by and letting their brown, shoots, brown shirts do the work. It, this is a common thing in fascist in fascist tyrannies, you let the, the sort of wild men go and do the violent stuff, and then you have your police stand by. I mean, not to, the, the, the comparison is, is not full, but it is just a demonstration of how fascism works. During Kristallnacht in, in Germany, it was not actually the police forces overall that were going out and burning down synagogues and beating up Jews. For the most part, it was members of the Brown Shirts, which is a sort of paramilitary organization, who were going around doing all this stuff, and the police were told to back off and let it happen. This is what fascist dictatorships do. They don't want to have all of the violence on their own head. They don't want to be blamed for all the violence. So instead, what they do is they activate people like Antifa. They let, they let Antifa go out there and burn things and threaten people and hit people with sticks and club people and stab people and throw dynamite at people, and then they tell the cops back off and let them do it. Okay, that is just as fascist as the fascists who are actually participating in this nonsense. And it is really quite frightening. It's very frightening. 
It's very scary, and it is totally inappropriate, obviously. And it is violative of the First Amendment. Again, this idea that Berkeley is putting out there that we can't guarantee safety, let me ask a question. If Ta-Nehisi Coates, this left-wing radical who's become a public intellectual on the left, if Ta-Nehisi Coates were to speak at Berkeley and a bunch of white supremacists were to show up, you know, the, the, the phantom Trump supporters who are uh, all the neo-Nazi Trump supporters the media worries about, supposedly. And let's say they were all to show up at once and they were going to protest Ta-Nehisi Coates in a violent way. Do you think Berkeley would tell the cops to stand down or do you think that they'd tell them to charge in their batons waving? And do you think that Jerry Brown would call out the National Guard? Obviously, Jerry Brown would call out the National Guard. Of course he would. But that's not what the university is doing. Instead, the university says, quote, this university is Nicholas Dirks, who's the university's chancellor. He says, this university has two non-negotiable commitments, one to free speech, the other to the safety of our campus, community members, their guests, and the public. In that context, we cannot ignore or deny what is a new reality. Groups and individuals from the extreme ends of the political spectrum have made it clear their readiness and intention to utilize violent tactics in support or in protest of certain speakers at UC Berkeley. We cannot wish away or pretend these threats do not exist. Okay, no one is saying that you should wish away or pretend the threats don't exist. We're saying you should counter the threats. That is your job. You are the, as the university chancellor, you have a UCPD. I know, I went to UCLA. You have a UCPD. Use the UCPD. Coordinate with the Berkeley police. The cops who are there, I guarantee you, are not sympathetic to Antifa. They're not sitting there going, oh, well, I'm just going to sit here and let Antifa do what they're doing. This is a political move by people at the top to allow all of this crap to happen. And this has become a trend across the country in violent situations and nonviolent situations. At Middlebury College, not one student, not one, has been suspended or expelled for physically assaulting a professor, a left-wing professor who ended up with a concussion. Not one. When I was at University of Wisconsin... A bunch of protesters took over the front of the stage. Nonviolent protesters, I thought it was ridiculous and funny, but they, they held up the entire thing for like 20 minutes. And I said to the cops, why don't you just move them out? They don't have a right to do this. Why don't you just move them on out? And they said, well, we've been told by the administration that if we move these people out, we will also have to shut down the event. In other words, it is up to the protesters to be nice people, and if they're not nice people, the cops won't do anything about it. This has become common across the country. University administrators who are too cowardly, who are too pathetic, who are too fascistic to shut down people who want to destroy free speech. And it's not equivalent when you say a protester doesn't have the right to shut down a full free speech event. That is not the equivalent of shutting down a free speech event. These two things are not equal. When I say a protester who tries to take over an event, assault people, prevent people from hearing speech— that is not the same as the speaker themselves. I'm fine with protesters who want to protest and not disturb the event. I'm fine with protesters yelling at me every so often. I don't care. That's First Amendment stuff. But when you have people who shut down events, when you have people who threaten violence like Antifa, it is your obligation as a police force, it is your obligation as governor of the state of California or mayor of Berkeley or, or PD chief, it is your obligation to protect the liberty of people. Okay, The police are not just there to protect your life. The police are also there to protect your liberty. And this idea that the university gets a violent threat and all of a sudden they're going to shut down the right. Again, they're just using the violent protesters as a proxy for they don't want this event to go forward. This is political bias. They should be sued and they should lose. And the university said it was impossible for the police department to simply step in and stop violent confrontations. They said this is a university, not a battlefield. Well, if you want it to be not a battlefield, then perhaps you should actually have defense. And this idea that you can just declare it's, not a, it's a university, not a battlefield. That's not what Antifa thinks. They've already made it a battlefield. In fact, there's a map going around that Antifa has put out of various sites, I guess, that uh, Gavin McInnes and Lauren Southern are supposed to speak in place of Anne today or tomorrow. Uh, and, uh, the, and the Antifa people have put out like a full military map of the area. It is not up to 
Berkeley, whether this place is a battlefield. It is a battlefield because Antifa has made it a battlefield. If you want it to be a free and open place of learning, it is your job with my taxpayer dollars. I'm a California taxpayer. It is your job with my taxpayer dollars to defend freedom. And the fact that they're not doing it is ridiculous. The police chief, Andrew Greenwood, he told the Berkeley City Council, I believe that's the same city council that voted to impeach Donald Trump because this is how crazy they are. Uh, He said, intervention requires a major commitment of resources, a significant use of force, and carries with it the strong likelihood of of harming those who are not committing a crime. Why does it carry with it the strong likelihood of harming those who are not committing a crime? Why? I hope that it requires a major commitment of resources and a significant use of force. I hope that you clobber these Antifa people who are actual fascists who are participating in violence. Police have an obligation to maintain law and order. And we've seen all over the United States that left-wingers do not care about violence so long as it springs from the left. We saw the mayor of Baltimore say that she wanted to provide safe spaces for people to riot in Baltimore. They're burning down businesses, and she was talking about safe spaces. Now we see the same thing at Berkeley. Have you ever seen... Have you ever said, not in my lifetime at least, have you ever seen a right-wing mayor say that he's fine with violence in the streets so long as it promotes right-wing causes? Have you seen that? I haven't seen that. Certainly not in modern history. And yet the left is doing this on a routine basis. The left is doing it over and over and over again. This is an assault on free speech, and everybody, right, left, and center, should be calling it an assault on free speech. It doesn't matter what you think of Ann Coulter. That's completely irrelevant. But according to the left, all that matters is that they don't like Ann Coulter. So Bob Beckel... Uh, the, the living troll on Fox News is the five. He came out and he was ripping on Ann Coulter as though it was Coulter's fault that all this was happening. Why can't the university protect Ann Coulter? I mean, they have the money, they have the manpower. Why can't they do it, Bob? They're well, first of all, let me, let me just say how uh, disappointed I am in all of you suggesting that this has something to do with the Democrats and liberals. These are anarchists who are coming in from around the country who have nothing to do with the Democratic Party. Howard Dean is an anarchist in himself. Ooh, uh, really? But- yeah, oh, you know, he was the way. former head of the Democratic I know, National Party. I know, Committee. I know. That's, it was a short-lived situation. But <laughs> it's too uh, bad because I love him I'm, there. The reason I'm for Ann Coulter speaking yeah. is she has a right to speak, number one, and every mm-hmm. time she opens her mouth, oh boy, it drives away more people. She's becoming more and more irrelevant, so she does something like this to get a lot of attention. This is the woman who said, America has been graced by a Christian God to have Donald Trump as president. That wasn't all. She declared Marco Rubio a rapist. And three, at least Beckel is standing up for Coulter's right to speak. But there are people on the left who haven't been. The ACLU is even standing up for right to speak. But the people in power aren't. And that's the only thing that matters. So I guess good for Bob Beckel in one sense. But it is just ridiculous. It is ridiculous that so many members of, of of the administration, the mayor of Berkeley, that they are going to allow this to to go ahead. It's really disgusting. Apparently, Berkeley's mayor has he called out. I love this. He called out Ann Coulter for stoking possible violence. So Mayor Jesse Erigwin, I don't know how to pronounce his name, he said, Berkeley's about the free exchange of ideas, but that's not what's happening. So I think going forward, we are going to need to have a more visible police presence at these incidents and intervene. You think? You think, you idiot? But he blamed Ann Coulter for all of this. He said that it's Ann Coulter and Milo who are causing this. Again, this is the same argument as her skirt was short, therefore she was asking to be raped. It's the exact same argument, and it is truly disgusting. And this had better come under control, or people are going to pay the price with their lives. People are going to get killed. And I hope it's not me, because I'm the one speaking on campus more often than not. So it's really disturbing to me personally. Now, before I go on on this, I want to talk about ESPN. 
I want to talk about Obamacare repeal. I want to talk about taxes and trade in the borders. There's a lot to get to today before we get to the mailbag. But before we do that, I want to say thank you to our advertisers over at CISO.com. S-E-E-S-O.com. So if you are into comedy, if you like comedy, then CISO.com is the place to do it. They have a brand new show out. It's called Hidden America. And it's, um, it's, a, it's a mockumentary, basically, travel show making fun of uh, people like Reza Aslan on CNN uh, and all the rest of the, the tra- Anthony Bourdain. It's a travel show where the places are real, but the people are definitely not. They take you on a comedic journey through America with a travel show parody that has been called a long-weighted gut punch for every Bourdain addict, which is great because I think Anthony Bourdain is, is ridiculous and silly. So making fun of him sounds like a lot of fun. There are a bunch of other shows that they have as well. They have a lot of original shows. Uh, they have shows from Dan Harmon, who's the guy behind Community, which is a really funny show. They have old episodes of all of the, all of the late night. They have the entire Monty Python catalog. They have the entire 42 seasons of Saturday Night Live, back when it was good even. They have everything. It is the place for comedy. CISO.com. They have all the British comedy. They have Kids in the Hall and Parks and Rec. As I say, you can get it everywhere. You can get it iOS, Android, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV for just three ninety for for just um, three ninety nine a month. You can stream all the comedy that you could possibly want at CISO.com. Use that promo code Ben. You get one month for free, so you can try it out, see if you like it. My wife and I love it. We watch CISO all the time. CISO.com, S-E-E-S-O.com, and use that promo code Ben. Again, you can see all of that for just $3.99 a month. So, you know, there are other streaming services, but none of them have the sort of catalog that CISO does, and they don't produce the original comedy CISO does. So if you are into comedy, CISO is the place to be. CISO.com, promo code Ben, S-E-E-S-O.com. Dot com. Check it out, and you get one month for free. So before we uh, before we have to go exclusively to DailyWire.com for the rest of the show, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on at ESPN. So ESPN fired 100 people yesterday, and there's a lot of big names that they fired yesterday. They, they fired a bunch of people who I enjoy watching. NFL reporter Ed Werder was, was fired. Uh, NFL analyst Trent Dilfer was fired. MLB writer Jason Stark was fired. The entire NHL reporting team was fired. And yet, and yet, Total buffoons like Max Kellerman still on the air. The, all the guests from around the horn still on the air. We definitely need Kevin Blackstone telling us how the national anthem is a war anthem. He actually said that on Around the Horn. We, we still need him to opine on the virtues of Caitlyn Jenner, who hasn't been athletically relevant for my entire lifetime. But we have to get rid of, you know, the actual people who report sports. This is because ESPN has made a conscious decision. It's the same decision the Democrats made in 2012, that they are going for a new demographic. That's really what this is about, and no one wants to talk about it, so I'm going to tell you the truth about what ESPN is doing. ESPN has made a conscious decision that they are going to program leftist politics because they believe that their growing demographic base, the people who are watching sports more, particularly sports like the NBA, are black and Hispanic. And so they think that if they put on more hosts who are black and Hispanic and left, then they are going to gain more black and Hispanic viewership and they don't seem to care that they are losing a lot of viewers who are conservative in the process. This is why the NHL is going, right? The, the overwhelming majority of people who watch the NHL are white. The overwhelming, well, not, the, over, the disproportionate percentage of people who watch the NBA is black, uh, according to the Nielsen statistics. And they've decided that the NBA is more important than the NHL. The NBA is a lot bigger than the NHL, but you don't have to. You could do both. I mean, if you're a sports network, you just cover the highlights and you tell me what I need to know in the news. That's why I used to watch Sports Center because it was clever and it was witty and because people were funny. It was back in the day when Keith Olbermann didn't feel the need to talk politics. And it was just it was interesting and fun to watch. I used to get up at six o'clock in the morning when I was a kid to watch Sports Center every morning. Every morning, I'd get up at 6 a.m. to watch SportsCenter because that's how much I loved ESPN and that's how much I loved SportsCenter. And they've decided to absolutely destroy it. They've decided it's more important to hire Jameel Hill and Michael Smith for a million bucks a year in order to babble about Donald Trump than it is to actually have reporters like, as I say, 
Jason Stark, who's a fantastic reporter for Major League Baseball. It's really terrible. ESPN's public editor said that the network would continue to push politics. They said, the desire to throw a boundary between sports culture and politics is a fool's errand. The volume of non-sports content within ESPN's empire has increased significantly in recent years. Some of that has been driven by the athletes ESPN covers who have in recent years begun to speak more forcefully about societal and political issues. You want to know why they're doing that? Because ESPN covers them when they do it. So to pretend that it's the athletes who just suddenly decided to speak politically is nonsense. Athletes were speaking politically 30 years ago. As this guy, as he, as he acknowledges, the difference is that ESPN has now decided to make socially active athletes the heroes of their little morality plays. And there are those of us, like me, who just want to watch the baseball. All I want to do is watch MLB Network now. I'd rather watch MLB Network and watch Kevin Millar talk about nonsense about baseball, then I, if I want to watch politics, I'll watch politics. If I want to watch baseball, I'll watch baseball. I don't need your take on Caitlyn Jenner's heroism and transgenderism in the Olympics. I don't need it. Okay, and this idea that ESPN is just going to keep preaching politics, good. I hope everyone keeps cutting the cable. I hope that people keep tuning out. There are two ways that ESPN makes money. One way is from cable subscription fees. The other way is from advertising. Their ratings have been plummeting. They should plummet. People are cutting the cord because the technology is changing and no one feels the need to subscribe to cable anymore. I used to subscribe to cable specifically for ESPN. And I'm going to unsubscribe from cable this week because there's nothing for me to watch on ESPN anymore because I have nothing to watch on ESPN. On the day before they cut 100 of these reporters, on the day before they did that, they ran a piece on ESPN.com titled Five Poets on the New Feminism on ESPN.com. You think I want to read Five Poets on the New Feminism? I won't even read it if it appears at Jezebel. I'm not going to read it if it appears at Everyday Feminism. And I love Everyday Feminism because it's hilarious. But I'm certainly not going to read it if it appears at ESPN.com. Again, the left has infused every aspect of culture with politics, and they shouldn't be surprised when the backlash is to infuse politics with culture, which is one of the reasons that Donald Trump is the president of the United States. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about all of that, and then I want to get to the politics of the day, Obamacare appeal and taxes and trade and the border. I'll get to all of that plus the mailbag, but you have to go over to dailywire.com for that. You can subscribe for $8 a month over at dailywire.com. Become an annual subscriber, and you get a free copy of Jeremy Boring's The Arroyo, fictional film set on the southern border action action story, kind of a, a newfangled Western set on the southern border about the property of a rancher being used as a thoroughfare for trafficking drugs and, and human beings. It's basically why we need the Trump wall, the movie. Uh, so go check out The Arroyo, um, but you do that by becoming an annual subscriber over at Daily Wire, or you can subscribe over at Apple Podcasts, iTunes, SoundCloud, and when you do, make sure that you leave us a rating, uh, make sure that you uh, that you leave us uh, a comment, we always appreciate it, and uh, we are the largest conservative podcast in the nation. So now on to the hard news, and I mean all the stuff going on with the Trump administration. So Obamacare is not going to be repealed. Okay, It's just not going to be repealed. The new plan that's now been embraced by the House Freedom Caucus, I talked about it a little bit yesterday, but I want to go through it in a little bit more detail. They endorsed a new version of Obamacare quasi-repeal in the House. It would give states the freedom to opt out of federal insurance regulations, forcing insurance companies to cover pre-existing conditions and mandated services. So in other words, right now Obamacare forces insurance companies to cover you. If you come in and you say, I have cancer give me coverage, the insurance companies are forced to cover you at a fraction of the cost of the actual care, which means they're not insurance companies anymore. Now they are basically just piggy banks for you, which is what's bankrupting the insurance companies and causing them to opt out of Obamacare generally. But that provision is popular because it makes people feel like if they have a pre-existing condition, they can get care. The House Freedom Caucus is inserting a provision that says if a state wants to opt out of these regulations, it can if it vows that it's going to lower cost and that it's going to increase coverage or that it's going to increase coverage. 
here is the problem with this system. And I understand the House Freedom Caucus is basically caving right now uh, because they feel this is the best they can do, and they think the Senate's not going to pass anything anyway. I get all of that, but it's not really going to repeal Obamacare. It leaves all the regulations in place. And let's say you're a governor of a, let's say you're a governor of a deep red state, a deep red state. Obamacare has been the law of the land there and premiums have risen because of Obamacare. And you were tough enough not to accept the Medicaid reimbursements for expansion that the federal government offered. Now, let's say that you take the House Freedom Caucus's offer and you get rid of the Obamacare regulations and go back to the way the system was before. So costs drop because now the insurance companies are not forced into the system. Well, The truth is that most of these insurance companies have already dropped out in your state, so the cost probably wouldn't drop all that much. And some people are going to lose their insurance because of the pre-existing conditions coverage, and you don't have the Obamacare Medicaid subsidies to pick up the slack. Or, alternatively, you could just sit tight, wait for the insurance companies to pull out on their own, and then blame them. Politically speaking, are you actually going to pull out of Obamacare? The answer is no. You're just going to let it collapse on the state level. All that's happening here is that the federal Republicans are pushing this entire issue down the road to the state Republicans at best. But they're not really even doing that. They're basically acknowledging that Obamacare is here to stay. And the reason it's here to stay is because Republicans bought into the basic idiotic premise that the government has a role in health care. The government does not have a role in health care. Once you buy into the idea the government has a role in health care, you're going to either need to mandate the people by coverage, you're either going to need to increase the subsidies tremendously, or you're going to need to get ready for rationed care. Those are the three options that are available, and none of them are palatable, but all of them are more palatable, apparently even to Republicans, than just repealing the damn thing. So all this talk about Obamacare repeal ain't going to happen. The real reason Republicans are now pushing Obamacare repeal is not because they want to repeal Obamacare. It's because they want what Paul Ryan is doing with the Medicaid block grant change, which granted is, is a difference. I mean, the, the need-based Medicaid program is a disaster for the federal budget, but it's a budgetary issue. The whole goal here by Paul Ryan is ram through this health care vote, and then you're lowering the the Uh, the expected deficit by like a trillion dollars over the next 10 years. And then you can apply that trillion dollars to the tax reform bill, because basically the way this works procedurally right now is that normally it takes 60 votes in the Senate to pass anything over a Democratic filibuster. Republicans only have 52 votes in the Senate. So what do they do? They have a process that's called reconciliation. Reconciliation allows you to pass a bill with 51 votes so long as that bill does not increase the deficit. right? And that's one of the provisions. It can't increase the deficit. And it also has to be on topic. So it can't increase the deficit, and it has to be on the topic of some other legislation that has already passed. So when it comes to tax reform, if you want to pass Trump's big tax package, this, 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 which we'll talk about in a second, if you want to pass that thing, then with 51 votes, you need it not to increase the deficit. However, tax cuts in the short term increase the deficit. Over the long run, maybe you have economic growth that makes up for it, but in the short run, it increases the deficit. So you're not going to be able to pass it with 51 votes. So what you do instead is you decrease the deficit with the block grant Medicaid program in the health reform bill, and then you apply those savings to the tax reform bill. That's sort of what Republicans are trying to do here. I don't think it's going to work, which brings us to taxes. So Donald Trump, Steve Mnuchin, who is the, who is the uh, Treasury Secretary, uh, he has come out and he has said that that we are going to put forward this Trump tax plan. They're doing it before the 100-day mark, but the tax plan itself is not particularly detailed. Listen, if it were to pass, that would be great. If it were to pass, it would be awesome, because what he's talking about is getting rid of the vast majority of tax brackets, turning it into the turning it into three different tax brackets. I think it's 35 
percent, twenty percent, twelve percent. He wants to get rid of a lot of the tax deductions, uh, except for mortgage deductions, which will remain. That's good because the government really shouldn't be picking and choosing which spending is better and which spending is worse. He wants to lower the corporate tax rate to fifteen percent. Truth is, as Kevin Williamson says, we should lower it to zero percent so long as we're going for it. It is ridiculous that a corporation pays taxes and then it disperses the profits to its employees basically by paying them wages, and then the people pay wages, pay taxes on their wage. Basically, they're being taxed twice. Corporate income tax should go away forthwith. But nonetheless, uh, the the fact is that you know the um, the the fact is that this would be a very very good plan, um, and uh, it would be worthwhile for it to pass. It is not super detailed. Chuck Todd points that out on MSNBC. On, uh, MSNBC. Now we haven't even touched the optics of having two Wall Street financiers, both Cohn and Mnuchin, come from Goldman Sachs rolling out a plan ostensibly designed for the middle class. Bottom line, a plan that cuts a lot of taxes for the wealthy that's spearheaded by Wall Street titans appears to be another dramatic departure from Mr. Trump's campaign rhetoric. Do you believe in raising taxes on the wealthy? I do. I do, including myself. I do. Wall Street has caused tremendous problems for us. We're going to tax Wall Street. I know the guys at Goldman Sachs. They have total, total, total control over him. Just like they have total control over Hillary Clinton. They have total. But they have no control. They have no control over Donald Trump. (laughs) All right. That's the thing with Trump. There's always something from the campaign you can bring, Brad. And then there is something from the campaign you can bring back because he said a lot of things that didn't make a lot of sense during the campaign and that were ignored by a lot of people. But listen, if the policy that comes out is a better policy than what he was proposing on the campaign trail, good. I will say one thing about the media that is insane. They're trying to claim that the reason that Trump is now pushing this tax plan, which, by the way, is the same tax plan he's had on his website for six months with no additional detail, in fact, less detail than there was on his website. The idea that he is trying to push this for his own financial benefit is just idiotic. The idea is trying to change the entire financial system in the United States for his own financial benefit. The dude is very wealthy. He's never going, he didn't have to work a day in his life before. He certainly is not going to have to work a day in his life after he's president of the United States. It's just silly, but the media are trying to look for some sort of corruption angle that doesn't exist. Hopefully, Trump will be able to put forward some sort of tax reform plan uh, that is workable. We will find out. That's the good news. The bad news is that Trump continues to push kind of silliness on protectionism. Apparently, Trump yesterday floated the idea of just getting rid of NAFTA at the end of his 100 days because he'd been ripping on NAFTA for two years. He's been ripping on NAFTA really since it was initiated. NAFTA has increased the amount of trade between the United States, Mexico, and, and Canada from $50 billion before NAFTA to $500 billion after NAFTA. That is a good thing. That's more American products that are being sold in in foreign countries. It means more jobs in America. This is all good, okay? This is all good stuff. Trump hates NAFTA, though, because he doesn't understand basic economic concepts like comparative advantage. But Laura Ingram, who's become a very protectionist kind of gal, she went at Charles Krauthammer over all of this, even after, apparently, Trump backed down off this. Uh, Yesterday, Trump floated this. Within 12 hours, he said, no, 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 we're not going to get rid of NAFTA. And then this morning, he came back and said, well, maybe sometime we'll get rid of NAFTA. And now Justin Trudeau is apparently telling the press in breaking news that Trump was ready to pull out of NAFTA, but Trudeau pointed out that this would really hurt the economy. And then they agreed to sit down and negotiate. So it's just he doesn't understand trade. But here's Ingram versus Krauthammer, and it's demonstrative of a split in the Republican Party that is largely based on a myth. And I want to talk about the myth in a second. I can't imagine that we're going to start uh, this administration with a trade war with 
Canada. I can understand China, can understand other people, but this is our closest ally in the world, and in a way is gratuitous. Last word on the, this. the word protectionism is always thrown around to anyone who stands up for American workers or American companies. But and you I would say up for well, some workers, it, not well, all workers. Well, no, I think what, what Donald Trump campaigned on, which I assume he will do, is on issues like cold rolled steel. Barack Obama, uh, George W. Bush, uh, Ronald Reagan, most presidents invoke some type of temporary tariff to marketplace efficient. It is wildly distorted now. We had a 20% increase in the dumping of cheap steel in the United States in the first three months of this year from the previous year. We had, I think, 18 out of the 20 top steel manufacturers in the world were American. Now I think it's about three. So there are ancillary effects. We tried globalization and, and let it all ride on a WTO, and we got Donald Trump as president. Okay, well, just because we got Donald Trump as president doesn't mean Donald Trump is right on economics. And this is what scares me about this particular aspect of, of the Trump administration and where it's taking us. It is a big government administration. What he is talking about, and this is one of the problems with, with tax reform, Republicans are once again running up against a basic problem, and that is – do you increase deficits or do you decrease taxes? Because the, these, are, these are the choices, right? I mean, the choices are you can either have low taxes and higher deficits right now, or you can have higher taxes and lower deficits right now, or at least maintain taxes, or you can cut spending, right? This would be the better idea, would be to cut taxes and cut spending. But they're not talking about any of that. They're talking about bigger government. The promise that Barack Obama made to his particular constituencies was, I am going to help you with the power of government. And this is why Trump is a protectionist. The promise that Trump made to many of his constituencies is, I am going to help you with the power of government. You have two big government parties, one that wants lower taxes and one that wants higher taxes. That is not good because either way, you're going to end up with massive deficits through increased spending on the left and through decreased taxes on the right. The fact is, I want lower taxes too, okay? I got racked by the federal government this year. I mean, I just got destroyed by the federal government this year. I paid an enormous amount in tax. My supplemental tax bill was more than I used to make in a year, like 10 years ago, okay? So the idea that I want higher taxes is inane. I, of course, want lower taxes just like you want lower taxes too. However, if you want to make sure that America has a credible future, we cannot continue to blow out the deficit. This is what Paul Volcker, Volcker recognized very early on in the Reagan administration. It is imperative that we start talking about ways to cut, not merely ways to spend. And this is going to be a continuing, ongoing battle with Trump because Trump is not a small government guy. Meanwhile, on the border, the, the real controversy that is broken out on the border right now is that the, the new budget is not going to include any funding for the border. Trump appears to be backing off this thing, as we talked about yesterday. It, his own base is just fighting mad over it. Uh, his own base should be fighting mad. Ann Coulter wrote a column yesterday. And Ann Coulter, the author of a book called In Trump We Trust, right? Not In God We Trust, In Trump We Trust. Ann Coulter wrote a piece yesterday that was so vitriolic and angry at Trump for even, for even talking about not pushing the wall. And I think that she is totally right, actually. I think that she has every reason to be very angry at this. If there is one promise that Trump made one bajillion times during this campaign, it was that he was going to build a wall. The wall would be built under any circumstances. The wall would be built. He, it would have to be built. And if it didn't get built, then he was lying to you and all the rest of this. You know, so I'm trying to find the quote from Anne because it is so fully over the top. I mean, she, she's right, but it, but it demonstrates the level of ire which is incredibly high. Uh, she, she says in, in this column, she talks about how basically he will be worse, it'll be the worst broken promise in the history of American political discourse is basically what Ann Coulter says. So, you know, I, I think that that is true. Even the, the head of the RNC, 
is, uh, is, is pointing this out now. Here is what Anne just wrote. This is over at Breitbart.com. She said, building a wall is not only Trump's constitutional duty, it is also massively popular. She says, no politician wants to have to explain a vote against the wall. What Democrats want is for Trump to be stuck explaining why he didn't build the wall. Then it will be a bloodbath. Not only Trump, but also the entire GOP is dead if he doesn't build a wall. Republicans will be wiped out in the midterms. Democrats will have a 300-seat House majority. Trump will have to come up with an excuse for why he's not running for re-election. The New York Times and MSNBC are not going to say, we are so impressed with his growth in office, we're going to drop all that nonsense about Russia and endorse the Republican ticket. No, at that point, Trump will be the worst of everything. No one voted for Trump because of the Access Hollywood tape. They voted for him because of his issues, most prominently his promise to build a big, beautiful wall, and who's going to pay for it? Mexico. You can't say that at every campaign rally for 18 months and then not build a wall. Do not imagine that a Trump double cross on the wall will not destroy the Republican Party. Oh, we'll get them back. No, you won't. <coughs> Trump wasn't a distraction. He was the last chance to save the GOP. Millions of Americans who hadn't voted in 30 years came out in 2016 to vote for Trump. If he betrays them, they'll say, you see, I told you so. They're all crooks. No excuses will work. No fiery denunciation of the courts. The Democrats or Laraz will win them back, even if Trump keeps up with demeaning Twitter names for them. It would be an epic betrayal, worse than Bush betraying voters on no new taxes, worse than LBJ escalating the Vietnam War. There'd be nothing like it in the history of politics. Well, that is the precipice on which Donald Trump stands, and he's hoping that he's going to be able to, to buck it. But it's pretty clear that... Uh, they do they have the stones to actually stand up here? Unclear. I will say that they, they are directing their language in a way that would be good if they would stand up and just say, let the government shut down. Put it on the Democrats. Let the government sh- let the Democrats shut down the government on the supposed basis of, of not wanting to build the wall. That's a winning issue for Republicans. The chair of the RNC says the base will walk away if the wall isn't built. The president comes out yesterday and says it's going to be a wall. Uh, so what is the RNC doing specifically to push the Trump agenda and help it get traction in Congress? Well, I think part of it's communicating to our lawmakers what we're seeing on the ground. And I'm from Michigan. I was part of the Trump movement as a Michigan chair. And I know that our voters are going to hold us accountable in 2018 if we do not keep the campaign promises that were made. And so when you get to Washington, sometimes you forget what was said outside. And it's important that we bring that back to Washington and let them hear what the voters expect of this government and and of the president. They're going to lose the trust of our base. If we don't keep our promises, our base is going to walk away. And they're going to feel like, hey, you, you said one thing on the campaign trail to get elected, and then you didn't act on it. Okay, and she is right, and this is some this is a line that Trump is going to have to walk, but the question is, who's governing Trump? Is Trump governing Trump, or is Ivanka governing Trump? Yesterday, Ivanka Trump, the daughter of the president, the, the princess of the regime, and she came forward and she said that maybe we should let in Syrian refugees. This is a bit of a change from what Trump was saying during the campaign. Ivanka Trump now going further than her father on whether those refugees should be let into the U.S. I think there is a global humanitarian crisis that's happening and we have to come together and we have to solve it and and you know refugees include opening the borders to syrian refugees in the that has to be part of the discussion but that's not going to be enough in and of itself okay so again is she how much impact does ivanka have on all of this if you feel certain about trump at this point it's because you're not watching closely enough i don't feel certain he's going to be bad but i certainly don't feel certain that he's going to be good on all this and i'm i'm sorry the trollery is not going to solve anything but the fact is that this is a problem that could be solved relatively easy. Ted Cruz said, build the wall on the southern border, make El Chapo pay, let's just confiscate all of his wealth. And he's right. Your plan, Senator, is called the El Chapo Act. What is this? 
Well, you know, as you know, the Democrats are threatening a government shutdown because they are so opposed to building a wall. They're so opposed to finally securing our border. And, and so I've been trying to think about how can we get this done? How can we build the wall even in the face of democratic obstruction? And so yesterday I filed the El Chapo Act that provides that if El Chapo is convicted, you know, the famed Mexican drug lord, the estimates are that his criminal fortune is roughly worth about $14 billion. Wow. Now, coincidentally, the estimates for the cost to build a wall range from 14 to $20 billion. And so my legislation provides that if those assets are forfeited, those assets from El Chapo will go directly to building a wall and to securing the border. It sounds like a pretty good build to me, and I don't see what the problem is there. Okay, time for some things I like, and then a thing that I hate. Okay, so things I like. We've been doing kind of lesser-known great works from terrific from terrific composers. I'll get to that in just a second. But first, I want to say thank you to our new sponsors over at Beachbody. So I travel a lot, and I also exercise a lot. As you can tell from this rocking body that everybody in the studio knew I was going to talk about today because of this ad. But I work out incessantly. In fact, I have worked out with a personal trainer. It is now Thursday. I've worked out with a personal trainer four times this week. Boom! But I also, when I'm on the road, I need to, I, I can't bring my personal trainer with me on the road, and that's why I have Beachbody On Demand. It is the total solution for health fitness, and weight cost. Members get convenient access to over $6,000 worth of the most effective fitness and nutrition programs ever created from world-class super trainers. I was actually using Beachbody with my wife years ago before I even knew uh, that we were going to be advertised with, with them. Right now, if you text Shapiro to 303030, text Shapiro to 303030, you get a free 30-day membership over at Beachbody. You get free run of their of their health, fitness, and weight loss programs. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm in really good shape, but in order to keep in really good shape, I definitely have to use Beachbody while I'm on the road. They have all the videos that you can work out in your hotel room with. They have all of the, the weight loss guides that you could possibly want. Uh, they are the people who originally created, like, the P90 and the P90X. Uh, the, the, they are the best in the business, the Beachbody folks. And they're the people who are going to make sure that you don't – if you don't have time to run to the gym, if you don't have time to uh, – you don't have the money for a personal trainer – you get a subscription to Beachbody On Demand, and that is going to ensure that you are in fantastic shape. You get a 30-day free membership right now if you text Shapiro to 303030. You get a full 30 days of access to the entire platform for free. Uh, and they also have a brand new first-of-its-kind cooking show for healthy weight loss and portion control. It's called Fixate, and that'll teach you how to cook healthy, delicious, and simple recipes for you and your family. If you need to lose weight, if you just want to get in better shape, if you just want to live longer, Beachbody is for you. Text Shapiro right now to 303030. Again, they do P90X and Insanity, all the, all the ones that you've seen on TV. That's all Beachbody, and you can have access to all of that when you go to, when you go to Beachbody. Uh, if you text Shapiro to 303030, you get that free 30-day membership right now. Okay, time for some things that I like. So the thing that I like today, I've been doing great composers and the uh, and the kind of slightly lesser known works. Uh, these are not, you know, completely obscure works by great composers, but uh, they are lesser known. This is from the Brahms Second Violin Sonata. I love playing these pieces. My father and I played these pieces all the time. Uh, in fact, we played the Brahms First Violin Sonata. I think I mentioned this on the show before. We played it at my bar mitzvah. Uh, we were going to play it at my wedding as well. My dad and uh, and a friend of his who's a violinist actually played it at my bris, at my brit milah, eight days after I was born. So I have a very warm relationship with the Brahms Violin Sonatas. This is the first movement of the Brahms Second Violin Sonata. We're picking up about a minute 20 in.
five best pieces ever composed. Phenomenal piece. Um, this is his second violin sonata, just beautiful. All three of his violin sonatas are masterpieces. Uh, they're gems, and they're, they're really f both fun to play if you're good, and they are fun to, and they are fun to listen to as well. Obviously, he's thematically beautiful. I mean, this is the secondary theme, right? Brahms is obviously in the, he's, he's reaching the romantic period in classical music, and you, hear the, you can hear the romance in his music. Okay, time for uh, some things I hate, and then we have to get to the mailbag, because I, I never do enough time for the mailbag. So, things that I, things that I hate. Uh, Bill Nye, I mean, he's just been, things I've hate all week is Bill Nye. Uh, his, his new show is a travesty. This was, this is one of the things that was picked up on by a lot of the media uh, from his new show, Bill Nye Saves the World. Spoiler alert, as always, he does not. Uh, here is Bill Nye talking about why you should murder your babies. Well, so the average Nigerian uh, emits 0.1 metric tons of carbon annually. How many does the average American emit? I did that with my coffee this morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 16 metric tons wow. is so what the average is. 160 times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so our two kids are way more problematic. The Nigerians with uh, an average seven children are not the problem when it comes to climate change. So should we have policies that penalize people for having extra kids in the developed world? Um, so I do think that we should at least consider it. Well, at least consider it is like, do it. One of the things that we could do that's kind of least policy-ish is we could encourage our culture and our norms to change, right? Okay, so this is so ignorant and stupid, I can't even express how dumb this is. This is dumb for a couple of reasons. One, the idea that it is the, that we have to kill rich kids in order so that we don't harm the environment, that basically don't have babies so that you won't harm the environment. Who do you think is paying for all of those people in Nigeria to stay alive? Okay, Nigeria is a horribly governed country. It's a garbage country with garbage governance. The reason 7 billion people exist on the planet today is because the power of the first world economy is driving the capacity of people to live on the planet, period. So the idea that millions of people are just going to be fine if there's no next generation, if we hit children of men in the West, but everybody's having tons of babies in the third world, the idea that that's not going to have any impact on global death rates, that it's not going to have any impact on the ability of people to live in the third world is just asinine. Half of the world has been driven out of abject poverty in the last 30 years by the free market. What do you think happens when all the free market people have no babies? We're about to find out in Western Europe, by the way. Western Europe does not produce at replacement rates. I think Italy is now at like 1.2 children per family, which means that in half, in half a century, there will be half the population in Italy. No one's going to be able to pay those bills. The country will be bankrupt. Russia has exactly the same problem. Japan has the same problem. China, believe it or not, has now a significant demographic crisis because of the one-child policy. The idea that developing and developed countries need to have fewer children, that's a great way to wreck the world and, and destroy whatever economic growth is, is going to happen here. So it's just foolish. It's, again, the, the scarcity mentality also. It's the same scarcity mentality pushed by the left in the 1970s, this Malthusian nonsense that we're all going to die if we just keep having babies. Again, the birth rate in the developed world is like less than two kids a family in virtually every developed country. I'm not sure how many more kids you can kill before you end up with zero kids in the developed world, which means the entire planet falls back into abject poverty. The problem here is not too many kids. The problem here is obviously that we need to, if you're deeply worried about carbon emissions, the problem here is we need market-based solutions that end up reducing the, the amount of carbon emissions. Last year, actually, we were flat in terms of carbon emissions from the year before. We're starting to flatten out because we're using natural gas instead of coal, because we're developing better technologies like Tesla. All of that is great, but the solution here is not to kill babies. I mean, also, this is eugenic. It's eugenic. I mean, so we're going to kill all the babies in the first world, but babies in the third world are totally fine. Just ridiculous all the way through. Okay, time for some mailbag. Let's do it. Okay. So, John says, hey, Ben, 
I've been a conservative since I was young, but one area I think we always got wrong is animal rights. In no way do I think animal life is as valued as human life, but I don't think that justifies us mass killing them for food. The more I look into the issue, the more sure I am I am just like with conservative uh, conservatism. What are your thoughts? So I have to acknowledge that this is an area where I feel like I need more study with regard to animal rights. Uh, I am of divided mind on it. The divided mind is partially selfish because hamburgers taste phenomenal, um, but there's also obviously animal rights issues with regard to how much can animals comprehend. Obviously, animals are not human beings, but to treat them as though they are rocks or plants is also not perfectly appropriate, which is why pretty much everybody believes that animal cruelty is wrong, right? If we, if we, didn't, if we thought they were plants or, or rocks and we wouldn't care about animal cruelty, uh, it's, it's something that I'm struggling with myself, John, so I don't want to give you a clear answer when I don't feel like I have one. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not willing to give up meat. Meat is still something that human beings need to eat. Um, but I think there is a case to be made that just on a voluntaristic basis, uh, we should try to, to be kinder to animals generally. And uh, if that, you know, means less meat eating, maybe that's not a terrible thing. Maybe it's not the worst thing for your health either. But I know that's sort of heresy. But, um, and it's heresy to me too. I love hamburgers. I mean, I love hamburgers. So um, I will I will acknowledge that I have a, a, a cow in this fight, so to speak. Okay, Jeremy says, you've always preached about the, follow, uh, the following the ideas rather than the person, such as making America great again, a great and noble idea. At the same time, being against Trump, since he's not someone who has a concrete ideology, I think this can apply to nearly everyone to some extent due to human nature. How are the American people supposed to trust or put faith in anything being voted into office? It seems like we always have to choose the lesser of any given amount of evils. Well, Again, if you follow the idea and not the people, then you can hold the people accountable. So I don't believe that you should be loyal to any particular person in politics. It is their job to be loyal to you, and that means you can slap them politically when they do the wrong thing. The founders didn't trust the people in politics either, which is specifically why the founders had a checks and balances system that was designed to iron out the fact that virtually all politicians have a certain level of corruption attached to them. Josh says, what is your response to people who would argue that while gay adoption isn't an optimal situation for a foster child, it's better than being raised in group homes or other such institutions? So I think there's probably truth to that. I think that the idea that, that being raised in a, in, in a gay couple is generally better than being raised in a group home. I mean, if you've seen some of the group homes, that is definitely a possibility. Be, being raised in a Chinese orphanage where it's overcrowded and the kid sees an adult once every day. You know, yeah, I think that that's probably true. But that does not mean that it is, number one, the optimal, nor does it mean that all of the straight couples who are seeking children have been appeased as yet with children. The adoption system needs to be simplified dramatically, and that would be the first step solution. You know, this is sort of like saying, wouldn't it be better for you know a, a 16-year-old single girl to raise a kid herself than it would be for the kid to be in, in a Chinese orphanage? Like Again, you're, you're choosing between lessers of two evils, and I understand that, um, but I don't think that means that we have an optimal situation now. We don't. We should facilitate adoption across the planet to two-parent, solid, family, heterosexual household. And Jordan writes, Hey, Ben, my father abandoned me when I was 14. I'm 21 now. Lately, I've been thinking if I'm supposed to love him because he's still my father, despite the fact he hurt me deeply. I'm not Orthodox Jewish, and I'm unfamiliar with the Bible, so I'm interested in your religion's take on this issue. So I don't think that you are obligated to love your father. Um, I'm not somebody who believes that you have to love people who harm you. I think that the obligation to respect your father that is biblical that only applies in biblical law to your father telling you to do the right thing. So if your father tells you, I need you to go over and kill my neighbor, you don't say, ah, honor your father and mother. It's in the Ten Commandments. That you don't, you don't get to do that. So I don't think that you are obligated to love your father if he deeply wronged you and your family um, on, on a moral level. 
I think that on a, on a healthy level, I think that it would be good to talk to somebody about this issue, obviously, because it's going to deeply trouble you and people have a tough time getting over this stuff. Um, but no, I, I don't feel like I, I'm not in a position to tell you you need to love the father who abandoned you and your family when you were 14 years old. No. Uh, Nicholas says, would modern feminists say the Sandlot lifeguard scene was sexual harassment? Yes, they would. Yes, they would, because everything that is mildly funny is now a sexual harassment scene, right? You have, it's a hilarious scene from The Sandlot in which Wendy Peppercorn, right, that is her name. It's a great movie. She's the lifeguard, and Squints is the, goes into the pool and pretends that he is drowned at the bottom of the pool so that, she will, so that she will give him mouth to mouth, and then he kisses her, and then they end up married. And that's the big joke, right, is that he's a dork, and then she's like three years older than he is, and then they end up married with eight kids, right? That's the joke at the end of The Sandlot. Okay, now... Is this something where if some kid did this to my daughter, I would kick his little ass? You bet, right? <laughs> but, but it's a movie. It's a joke. Like, get over it. It's not the biggest deal in the world. And to pretend that this is like forwarding a rape culture or something is just over the top. Half the things that are funny in the world are funny because they're inappropriate. It is inappropriate, of course. But it's not like, oh, don't watch that movie. Your kid's going to rape women. Come on. Matthew says... Mr. Shapiro, I had a discussion with a friend of mine on consciousness. I argued that given humans having free will, there is no definitive explanation for the advent of consciousness outside of God. He said he believes in the evolution of consciousness and the appearance of free will for some more intelligent animals is evidence of the evolution of consciousness. How would you respond to this argument? So the real question here is that there is no great scientific explanation for the notion of free will, the idea that you can, that you can drive your own behavior, essentially. This is why the, the, the argument, determinism versus free will, is, I think, the most important argument in both philosophy and science, uh, and I've been reading a fair bit about it lately. Uh, the idea that consciousness, is, that basically there's a school of thought that believes that free will and consciousness are a trick of your mind, that you don't actually have free will, that you are making up an excuse for something that your biology was driving you to do anyway. There is some evidence to that effect, but it doesn't really address bigger things like when you make a plan for the future. Is that your biology driving you? Like they, they say this because there's something famous experiment called the Libet experiment where they measured response time when you said that you they, they tell you that you get to that you should flip a light switch on or off and then they were measuring your brain response and it turns out your brain is firing before you know that verbally that you are going to turn the switch on or off. Right? So there's a lot of debate about this particular experiment, but the idea seems to be that your neurons are firing before you've actually made a conscious decision to flip the switch, and then you're making an excuse for why you made the conscious decision. There's a lot of debate about that as to whether the neurons firing is actually just initiating your capacity to choose or whether it actually is initiating your activity and flipping the switch. Uh, but there is a, a broader debate also about the extent to which this experiment holds true. Does it hold true for plans that you make 10 years from now? Does it hold true for what you're going to do on a conscious level? If you read Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, he talks about the two types of thought. And the fact is that slow thought tends to be more conscious and more free will-based, and fast thought tends to be more instinctive. And over the by using habit, you can actually turn slow thought into fast thought in some ways. But, uh, yeah, I, I do agree that without the presence of a supernatural, uh, it is difficult to explain why human beings are not just basically super complex computers interacting with their environment. Shane says, hi, I'm not a very good writer, so I'll just put this plainly, but please know this is important to me. So you guys win. I was an atheist, but you convinced me God exists. Now what do I do? Thank you very much, Shane. Okay, so Shane, I think that the next thing that you have to do is if you are convinced that God exists, first I would have to know why you think God exists. Uh, if I know why you think God exists, then we can discuss what God's standards for your behavior are. An involved God? Like, what kind of God are we talking about? Are we talking about a deistic God that set the universe in motion? Are we talking about a God who's deeply involved in your life? A God who sets moral standards and, and believes in right and wrong? I mean, my, my normal answer to this is if you believe God exists, then it is now your job to try and determine what moral standards he wants you to abide by and then abide by them. 
and the world would be a better place if we all had a godly moral standard. And I don't mean that all godly moral standards are equal, because obviously they're not. There are lots of religious wars. But the world without a godly moral standard is a pretty dark and evil place. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the week. Uh, and uh, please try not to ruin things over the weekend. We're going to start doing Friday shows in the near future, actually. We're going to start going five days a week in the near future. So stick around for that. But we will be back on Monday with more fun and games. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.